welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. We've got a fantastic lineup here today to talk about a brilliant topic, which is called the art of risk taking in game development. So some really good questions put forward by our guests today. Um, so let's get into it. First of all, we'll do a little round of introductions. So Gio, do you want to kick us off, please? Good. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Gio. I'm currently working as uh, Angry Birds brand creative director at Rovio. It's a mouthful of a uh, title. Um, mostly what I do, I work, I work on everything that is about the Angry Birds brand uh, campaign and mostly focusing on uh, 360 strategies. <clears throat> I'm fairly new to the gaming industry. I have four or five years in the gaming. I work at Cybo in Copenhagen, the maker of Subway Surfers before. And before that, I was at uh, King in uh, Stockholm. So in the past 15, 20 years of my career, I work on different companies, mostly on consumer product. Uh, on the creative side, I work at Lego for many years in Singapore and London. I work at IKEA. And um, I live in Asia, Africa, and Europe. And um, when I'm not working on creative stuff, I usually travel. My life goal is to see every country in the world. Amazing. And hi, I'm Rena McKeats. I'm the art director of Trees Please Games, which is a London-based startup specializing in playful, creative games that have a meaningful and positive impact in the world. But before I took the heady journey into the wild ride of startups, I was the art director in King. And previous from that, I was in Rovio, Ruga, and PopCap. So I have about 15 years experience in mobile free-to-play games and animation. And yeah, when I'm not busy playing games or making games, you can probably find me baking in the kitchen, that sort of thing, being a bit creative in a different field. Very nice. Perfect. Thank you, Rita. Well, hi, my name is JP. Um, and thank you for having me. It's super nice to meet you all. And on a, on a favorite subject of how to take a lot of risk when you don't do no math, right? It's, a, <laughs> it's a, where we are. Um, I have a pretty broad background uh, inside and outside gaming, but uh, mainly inside gaming where I've been primarily working the first uh, 15 years within IO Interactive doing the Hitman games, uh, Freedom Fighters, Ken Lynch, and also worked at Lego to do the Lego Dimensions. We might have had a crossover that time. I've uh, been working a little bit in mobile gaming as well and FinTech. Also done some consultancy within AI and human-centric design and um, some creator portals. <laughs> and currently I'm working with uh, Lego and Epic on their cooperation. So I've seen risk from a few different angles. Also worked as from keyframe to studio director to investor and have a feel for how it looks differently and definitely feels differently from different seats. So I'm super interested in hear your angles on it. Hi everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, a Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. 
Well, thank you all very much for your introductions. It is a really good topic and I'm sure we'll have a, a lot of good discussion about it. So as per usual, each guest has provided a question um, that they're going to ask today on the podcast and then we'll go around discussing it. So Gio, you're going to kick us off with the first question then. Cool. So my question is a little bit starting from uh, a top bird view perspective. And I want to start with um, Brené Brown quote, there is no innovation and creative without failure, period. So I want to bring this in as a first topic to discuss because uh, in game, everything is pretty much led by data. So I would like to discuss a little bit more about how we can take risk when we are so driven by data and how we can create and nurture <clears throat> an environment that can create innovation. Because if we're not trying anything new, uh, we're not trying in the first place. So as I said earlier, I'm not... Uh, a veteran in the gaming industry. I'm I'm a four years old baby, but I can already experience a lot of companies pr being proud of a data-driven culture. Now, mm. I'm not a purist of uh, creativity, but don't don't follow insights, <laughs> don't follow numbers, don't follow data, because I still think there's a lot of value in the data. But I would love to start having a conversation about can we start being guided by data instead of being driven? Because sometimes when you're driven, you're sort of blinded you don't really see um other options other things and I experience a little bit in um in my in my past four years in gaming where adverts look the same game most likely look the same these days and everything become beige beige is a color that i, I usually love very bright colors uh, and beige <laughs> comes something that you don't really see it's not so unique um as much and, and and the other thing is that that when uh, when you are creating something new, as a creator, as a creative, I believe risk is part of who you are. But it's no creation without uh, taking into consideration that that creation may not go through; it might fail. So that's part of of a nature of being um, um, creative. And when I think about the etymology of the word creative, it starts from create from the Latin, which is means you create from nothing. So if you base everything from data, I'm a bit worried that you're not so much creating anything new. And I've seen games and company even having discussion about, oh, creating game is, is difficult. So instead of creating a new IP and a new game, let's risk in what we have with something else, which is okay. There are businesses that need to, of course, need to be profitable and pay our salaries. But then are we truly creating? Are we truly being innovative? And also, I don't buy so much in the argument of it is too difficult to create an IP, so I don't even try. Mm -hmm. So when I bring it back now to, to failure and risk-taking, because I think the two topics are extremely interconnected, um, the, the biggest risk for me is not trying in the first place. Because if you don't try, then you don't fail. And that's sort of the, the biggest risk, is creating this sort of stagnation um, and the topic that I want to discuss is how we can move on when gaming culture are so embedded now in um, in data. And the other topic of reflection that I start having in my brain was time. Gaming is fast and now. They want things successful and done now. If you think about the risk and failure, you need to account time in the equation uh, because if I need it now and I need to be successful, most likely I don't have room to fail. 
So Batsor for me is interconnecting with the data. So we use data to sort of predict our outcome so we don't fail because also we don't have the time um, to fail. So this is the the, the, the topic that mm. I, I, I start having in, um, in my head and my reflection in the past four years of my gaming uh, career. I think it's a really meaningful question and it's one I've personally thought significant amount, especially when creating new games in particular. And what I've what I've come down to is that mobile game industry in particular, I can't speak for AAA, but mobile games industry in particular, um, is trying to inherently de-risk a process which is naturally risky. And I think this is a, a false sense of security because the analytics we're doing at the earliest stages of game development can really only give you a snapshot of where the market is now. And they're not necessarily a predictive model of where the market will be by the time you've completed your pre-production and your production. And with mobile games, um, is such a heavily competitive market and so many products coming out at the same time, all at the same time. The likelihood is if you're seeing this data, 10, 15, 20, 100 other companies are seeing it also. So I feel that the main problem with the data-driven approach, particularly in game development early stages is that it's actually slows you down and makes you more reactive rather than mm. proactive. So the way I like to think about it, I mean, the alternative people always say, oh, but the alternative is the altruistic approach where you just design something that you think is going to be great. And that certainly works, but it is challenging to predict the scale of that success. How many players in the world appreciate the same thing you appreciate? But personally, what I like to consider more is a sort of intuitive approach to game development where you based on your kind of expertise and your knowledge of the games industry and your knowledge of the market you try and choose an audience size that's large enough that you can predict a possible success and then design the game you think that audience will like in that one to two years as you develop and then once you make those initial creative decisions you can use data to help finesse that idea and improve that idea, but not necessarily go A-B test one, game game idea one, two, A-B test that, see which one is more successful, then do a theme test, see which theme is more successful, and then do a character test, see which character is more successful. And all the way down, it creates that example, this sort of beige, I like to call it blandification, where you sort of remove the innovative ideas from your product through testing. And the harsh truth is that many, like that initial idea doesn't necessarily test as well against the familiar ideas. Familiar ideas often at the early stages test better. Hmm. So what you can do is try and balance your innovation with something a little bit more familiar. If you're going for mass market success rather than like an indie or sort of a, a passion project, if you're going for mass market, you can take your innovative idea and keep that part innovative. And then you can balance that risk by bringing in something more familiar so that the player can anticipate what the game is going to feel like. And if you're looking for a similar, like I like to use Pixar as an example of this to kind of give you a sort of a structure in which to judge. Pixar will tell a very unusual story, like the inside of a teenage girl's brain or a silent robot trash collector falling in love or something like this. And they'll present it with a very mass market appealing, obviously very highly skilled, but very, very comfortable visual style, comfortable format, comfortable structure for the plot. 
And that way they always, they can create quite an innovative story and satisfy a broad section of the audience. So for me, I think this is where, when I talk to people about how to create, to take risks um, in a creative way, it's about blending the innovative with the, the sort of excitingly, engagingly innovative with the comfortably familiar. And then acknowledging that that's really the only way to create those sort of larger scaled success. So what you're talking about is a 1.2 version of a game, right? <laughs> Basically familiar, but just better and then something new along with the way. Not necessarily. I think 1.2 is, is, is that enough to satisfy not enough. teams? I think, I think you have to go further than that. Yeah. I don't think 1.2 is enough. Like that I see as more sort of incremental improvement. Yeah. But I'm thinking more is that if you're sort of core gameplay is very familiar. You may need to have a really extraordinary theme or an extraordinary meta system to kind of raise that familiarity. Um, or conversely, if you have a very unfamiliar and unusual core mechanic, yeah. you may want to have a simpler, more easily understood theme or a meta structure that the players can kind of predict, oh, I will, that looks exciting, but I know what it is rather than I have no way of judging what this what this will play like. I mean, you'll always get players who like those experiences. I think mm. people in the game de development community tend to be those players, those explorers. But if we're looking at mass market, that's a way to balance some of those risks. So you're really looking at the affordance, like how 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 people feel comfortable within the experience and and sort of you know innovate as fast as they can go, right? But um, I think my angle may be a, be a little bit more inside the company because uh, it's very often that there's a there's a real urge to do innovation and you have the talent in the room and there's also the money in the room and it's like you also see the need sometimes at least when you compare just to the innovations and it's like how can we move along but it's just rarely that somewhat rare that organizations are set up to allow innovation because uh, hmm. It's very hard to take the the anchor or the, the the nausea out of the risk when you do this stuff, right? Um, but it's very often that the structure around it is just not set up correctly. So we can come in and say, we want this. But then if you haven't really come to the place where you made your stakeholders, I, I think you said feeling comfortable. Like the, the keyword is feeling. Because if they are data people, you can't really move them with data because you're not going to be able to bring it right. So you have to double down on the feelings in this area to get you a bit of runway, a leeway to get a little further. There's a lot of practicalities of knowing when you can start an innovative process. Like if you can't sell it in high enough, then you're going to be the guy pushing all the time, climbing up the ladder all the time. And it's not going to be yours, right? If you take too much credit, if you're like an old school game director, just go, this is what it's going to be. Look at that picture. Then you might not be able to keep the steam up for two years, right? So really figure out, is there an organization around you that can, where the buy isn't high enough? Can you fence your budgets? <laughs> can you fence your people? Like most importantly, like if you started out, if you need people to do some innovation, what happens when stuff is burning at the other development pipeline? Like unless you're in a different house in a different project, <laughs> they're going to go there, right? You can't swim against burning stuff or, or rivers of money. So they'll gravitate towards that. So really making sure that when you start out also, because you have the responsibility for the employees that you promise innovation, come with me, we'll do something new. And then if you have not, 
cleared the ground. It's on you. Right? <laughs> and when you're six months later, haven't really moved far enough or haven't done what you promised them, right? So it's, um, I think that's the biggest risk in this. It's, it's honestly just, yeah, you can fail with the product. You can lose a lot of money. You can do lots of, but you can also lose a lot of time of people, a lot of people's time, right? Like you can throw away a year of some a talented person's life. That's super risky. Like that, that's what keeps me up. Like if I, if I, that, that's a, that's an everlasting cost. So to speak. Yeah. One so, of the companies I worked for was always speaking about employees time in terms of opportunity yes. cost. Yes. So, so will, will, how much sort of business impact will an employee have in a particular department? And it's incredibly mm. difficult to, to estimate that for R&D. It's much easier to estimate it for, for a more known product. So I feel that that, you know, to echo your point, sort of how do you convince people to take those creative risks when the output is so unknown and unknowable? You sort of have to take a chance. But weirdly enough, like if you look at the employee as a product also, like ship one every day, that product is more, it's easier to envision what it's going to be. Like it's closer to the person and that person's going to take the risk, right? So um, so if you if you have that area to it as well, it's you also have a product in that area where that becomes very easy for the individual employee to work with, right? I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to learn to excel this. I'm going to push myself to this comfort zone. So uh, you can get a lot of joy out of that. But really, my, my angle was you need to prepare your org. You need to you need to know what the next two years are going to be like. Not in detail, but you need to know the icebergs, right? And because um, your employees will just expect that they're not going to hit them. Yeah, and I can, I'd like to add a point because you mentioned about a lot of energy if you're the only person pushing for mm. that innovation because um, yeah. creative sometimes feels lonely when <laughs> you are not in an environment that sort of um, promote that creative risk-taking uh, project and environment. Uh, you also touch a point, one thing that relate planning. Um, I used to come from companies like Lego that plan campaigns two, three, four <laughs> years before, which sounds a little bit too long, but I found a lot of gaming companies are very bad at planning. Um, mm things that they want is yesterday. So then you scramble things and and even to allow that creative risk-taking uh, environment that we would love to have, um, it becomes very, very difficult. So planning definitely is key and time. That goes back to my second point that I was making in the question is of the essence because if you don't have time to to fail, you don't have time to, to create in my opinion. And also, Ten years ago, when all these uh, mobile game IP were created, I don't think they were created in a day. I think they tried 80, 70, 90 games before getting that winning title. Why did they not go back to that mentality uh, and that way of doing things? Now, if it doesn't work, okay, we kill it immediately. So um, I don't know. There was something back 10, 15 years ago, and this game is still standing and still loved by a lot of people. So maybe there's something that we need to go back to those times as well. Gio, yeah, I was going to ask, sorry, um, you know, I was just going to ask on the point that you said um, around like being innovative and, and the data, is there a turning point that somebody comes into the industry and like has been in the game industry for a certain amount of years and goes, right, I know what 
what works and what doesn't because of the data. So I'm going to be innovative and try something else. Or could somebody who's never been in the gaming industry just come in and just create something, you know, amazing? Like, do they have to have that experience to develop that sort of gut feeling or could it happen without that? I think we get trapped a little bit in our own industry sometimes because we do things in the way that we do, so there's no other way to do it. To a degree, of course, there are people that challenge the data. There are people that challenge the status quo and the ways things are done. But I was in a company, I'm not going to mention it, but when they were doing advert, oh, no, we can only use yellow because yellow perform. Yellow is the, is the color, but, like, but what about pink? What about green? Did, can we not just challenge that data and try something different? That's a stupid, this is a very stupid example, but um, I... I think we're seeing these days, for example, user acquisition videos, they all look the same. I even wonder if somebody watch these videos uh, anymore because they're terrible. When I see them on my mobile, to be honest, I put my mobile upside down, uh, down not to see these adverts because they all look the same. And I've been in company that the brief was, can we do a, a video similar to that other company because it is performing? So depend. Uh, I think it does. It could come from the industry, it could come from outside, but I think we need to start with curiosity and be able to challenge uh, what we have in front of us. Mm. I completely agree. I feel, I mean, the best the best creative ideas come when you have a mix of people with a different background. So ideally you would have people coming in from outside to provide that fresh perspective, to challenge some of those knowns as sort of truths that we might have uh, sort of taken into ourselves as we go through the industry you want that i think one of the one of the fascinating sort of contradictions i've seen in the industry is that we can all point to examples where someone took a creative risk in one method or another and it proved successful for them and then the industry just sort of duplicated that because that proved successful but it seems that companies really struggle to to actually take those innovations themselves. And I believe it's to do with the sort of, one, the cost of failure and, and two, the experience of failure. Because yeah. ideally, yeah, yeah, you are likely to fail when you're taking innovation and it's how you approach that uh, and how you push through that to the next stage that really makes or breaks you in comparison to all the other companies who are either doing the same thing or failing. Uh, Jens? Yeah. Um- to the question whether somebody outside gaming could just walk in and do uh, a new take on things. I think that's what we see a lot. But if I look at especially PC gaming the last 10 years, if not, a lot of the uh, innovation have come from the modding communities. Uh, somewhere where a smaller community gets around an idea and has enough time to nurture it until it's suddenly fun. Uh, I'm not, I don't think they're better designers than what you have in, uh, in professional companies, but they're dealing with a lot less gravity. Like way, what I mean by that is if you're in, in a large company organization, it's not like a heavy planet, right? If you want something new, you either need to be very fast, as the audio said, like get it done quickly. Like the escape velocity has to be super hard and fast. Or you have to create it somewhere far away and then buy it afterwards and bring it in, right? So when you're a small modding community, you don't really have the gravity of green lighting or focus test or the first data round. So, and there's lots of them, right? So and 
they get enough time with an idea, maybe a year where it's hidden in some corner of the Reddit, half a year. So it gets to crystallize, it gets to get, uh, become special before it gets watered down. Because that is, when it comes to the data part of it, that's at least what I fear the most is the, is the mediocrity that it brings with it. Uh, it's, it very often becomes white bread, but because everybody loves white bread. But who made Surf and Surf? Like, who did that? Like, for the first time with that game, I'll, I'll figure that out. But it's, and then I've seen, they, especially when companies start to use data, it can really strike fear into everybody. Because show somebody a red number, any red number. It could be 85 or nine. It's a red number. And the green number, you can't see if it's crystal. Like that green number could be 2,000. The red one can only become zero, but all the eyes are on the red number, right? So there's a very big risk when you do this if you start to talk in numbers and not talking feelings because uh, that one red number, that's that's what's going to be remembered, right? Mm. That's And then, then that that's what you have to move away you have to delete the red number <laughs> and and it petrifies lots of people right so and you don't have that if you're a mother it's a Everything really is- really interesting um interesting first question so thank you Gio. and some really really good points as well made on it and we'll we'll continue the discussion a little bit just moving away from uh the the data side of it but more with the the failure side of it so the next question is going to come uh, from rena please well we've touched on it slightly but i think what was what's interesting and why why risks are so hard to take is that by the very nature, they come with the possibility of failure. You can't have take a risk without that possibility of failure. And so I was curious how each of us approach, prepare for, and then, and then deal with the reality of failure and how we use that to further our creative um, risk-taking rather than stifle it. Great question. Who wants to go first? I can go. Um, when I was looking at the question, I started to think about, of course, myself. And as a creative, I cannot see myself being creative without risk. Like, I love risk. I get actually energized by risk-taking. I love, like, even when I'm not at work and I travel, for example, I travel on my own. I I consider maybe risky situations, but maybe I'm not. But it put me outside of my comfort zone when I travel on a third-class train, I don't know, in Kazakhstan, for example. Um so for me, as a creative, <clears throat> being out of my comfort zone and sort of not being sure about success or failure of the project I'm working on energized me already in the first place. And that's already for me, I'm not, I, I don't get too affected if a project doesn't go ahead, but I get affected if we don't even try. So for me, first, we need to clarify, we need to define ourselves. What is success, of course? What is failure? And for me, the failure is not a project not getting the green light. For me, it's a project but it's not done because we are afraid to fail in the first place. Um, so that's why I, I, I like to see it in this way. And the other approach that I have is uh, I mostly work in marketing and brand. Um, I don't believe in plan B. I, I, I hate plan B, if you ask me, because that means that your plan A just doesn't get 100%, 120% um, commitment and energy. And, I will fight for my idea. Um, I will try to turn all the stones possible to make sure that nothing is left. Um, then we can we can delete that project. We can cancel it. But I will I will fight a little bit to make sure that that project that idea get the chance that um, it deserves. So I would say mostly preparing up is 
who you are as a creative and also normalizing that the risk is part of being creative, I would say. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you, you ask for a, an approach to it, and that's, that's very, it's such a broad comment. <laughs> I think in general, if you can try and decouple fears from risks, because risks, it's, it's really just decision-making. But if decision-making making are combined with insecurities or even unclear expectations, it becomes super toxic and, and, and very, very stressful for people. Like it's a, everybody gets worn out by it, right? And, and you can be in situations where a team have performed wonderfully, maybe even above what they wanted, where they set the bar, but maybe marketing, you know, bumps up the numbers, the expected numbers with 1.5 a few months before because everything looks good. And then suddenly you didn't sell X million copies, you sold X minus one and hey, it's a failure. So that whole thing of, of being clear, as, as you say, on what does success look like, but also being very clear on where do we innovate and where don't we innovate? Where do we want to shine and where do we not want to shine? Back to your point earlier, Rihanna, of, of being uh, like, you can't do all of it. So if you're in a project where you're definitely not going to do great animation, your animators better know that, right? Otherwise, they're going to feel like failures while performing exactly like they should. So having that clarity of what is that? What is the hard thing we're trying to solve? What is the easy stuff we do like we did last time? And because then everybody can relax a little bit in it. Um, so it's more like risks. If 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 there's fears in it, it re really wears people down. So that comes a little bit to the personal levels. Um, like the project level, you can deal with with being clear. The personal, you really have to listen to what how they talk. <laughs> uh, not just employees or colleagues, but also the investors and the CEOs, like figure out what are their fears, because they might be vastly different than yours, right? But, and they will drive the project at some point. You know, when it gets tense, right? When <laughs> those that runway starts shrinking in, fear starts to kick in. And, and you really have to listen, because it's not a deadline that's going to push you around. It's some behaviors of people who feel under pressure in the project. Right? Then the the blame game can start and all of that that really can destroy a creative culture can happen in that area. So such a sorry, such a such a meaningful point. I, I always think about it in the sense that if if as a company you're seeing your success as a longer term goal, hmm. the goal is to um, innovate in a particular area or explore a particular area or to create meaningful products in this area, something something very tangible and creative focused rather than for example the success metric like i want to be the number one games and you know, games company in such and such a sector i feel that this can help a lot more because you expect then that on that journey towards kind of reaching whatever um, creative goal you've set for yourself you will likely have some missteps but the overall plan is to learn and grow from those and i feel that if you don't take creative risk you you won't be learning anything new so if you can predict the outcome it's almost like why why do it you know it's going to work you're not actually exploring you're sort of just repeating so i always feel for me the the best feeling in the world when i'm creating whether it's an art uh, art direction or a theme or, or a game is um if i'm a, i need to be a little bit uncomfortable to know that i'm on the right track because the, the more comfortable I feel, the less 
I'm sort of innovating, the less I'm pushing the boundaries, the less likely I am to succeed in the area that I want to succeed in. So for me, I think that's that's the first. You have to feel ever so slightly uncomfortable with your decisions to know that you're on the right track. And then if you do not succeed in the way that you aspire to succeeding, you've still successfully tried something. I think it's we can't find out whether it's going to work or not until we try it. And if we try it and it doesn't work, then at least we've learned that that particular answer to that problem isn't the correct one. And maybe we can do a, sec- a second version or we can use what we've learned to create that next step, the innovative one that does work. So I think one of the companies I worked in, and Wuga, they, they did this actually in a really lovely way that all their projects, regardless of how far through the production pipeline they got, were put into the wall of fame. And so cancelled projects were inclu- are always included and they get their party and they get their launch moment, they get their champagne and it gets put on the wall alongside the products that have gone on to, to be a big success because you can't get to those big successes without these experiments. Um, so I find, I think maybe this is a way of approaching some of these. We're experimenting, we're learning, we're growing as individuals, as a team, as a company by trying these ideas. And it's only trying them that we can find out whether they work or not. So that's kind of how I think of it. But that's a hard thing to say if you're um, betting the budget on us and you find yourself acquiring like a contraction moment where, you know, okay, maybe we've maybe we've taken a few too many risks and now we have to face the harsh realities of uh, budgets and business. But um, mm-hmm. hopefully we can, can find the right balance between those things, the economic risks and the uh, creative risks. Can I add one thing? You, you, you mentioned something that <clears throat> I'm very passionate about and I strongly relate is the trying. I think we don't focus so much on people trying and showing up every day to try and do things. And there is, I mentioned a quote at the beginning, I want to mention another quote that is, let's say that uh, uh, the only failure is a failure to try. And we measure success on how we cope with disappointment. Um, and, and that goes down to the point uh, that was made earlier about um, being clear of what success looks like. What is success? Because success for me and the team could be very different if we are not aligned. Um, and then also as a, as a company, if success is aligned, then it will become even easier to maybe sell a concept or sell an idea that feels a little um, uncomfortable because we're speaking the same language, we're on the same um, page. In my previous company, my, my, I had a great lead and she called all our campaign is a test. She, she went to the CEO, we are testing this, we're testing that. And that already creates uh, a sense of, okay, we're trying stuff. Uh, it might not work or it might work, but already create a sense of um, safety around, around the team that we're trying things. We're not sure what's the outcome, but we are trying. And uh, we try so many things. Of course, some we succeeded, some were less successful. But I think putting the focus on trying and trying and showing up every day is also as important as what success looks like or what failure uh, looks like. I really like the fact that you added, um, you, you said, asked around the approach and how do you prepare. But you said, how do you deal with the, the failure as well? So... Obviously, when the team does fail or the project does fail or whatever that failure is, you know, it must be. Or how do you go around setting up that culture that afterwards it's not like a 
you know, for a week, you know, you're moping around going, oh, well, that was a failure. I don't want to do this again. Like, how how do you each go about motivating again, you know, because once you've failed, if that's what we're talking about, like this failure, how do you, how long do you give it before you like onto the next one? You know, how do you go about motivating the next people? Is that a difficult challenge? It's super different, difficult to answer because it depends on the, the size and the frequency. Like if you are in a culture mm. where you have lots of failures and successes frequently, uh, it's not that big a deal. It's just like walking. <laughs> walking is like not falling all the time right? so it's uh it's it's pretty but the big ones oh it's so hard like i don't know i i, I always need to curl up a little while but it also depends where you are in the in the in the team right because um if you've given out a mandate you have to you you are the goalie <laughs> like like you, you have to have to absorb it and um there's so much pain in that question. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, I think some of the hardest conversations I've had with with team members is it, are the situations where they didn't see it coming. Yes. So so a lot of companies have different approaches to transparency about how the products are going, how the project's going, and we can all have, we all, there's reasons for that and very good business reasons why you might not be transparent, of course. But then the issue becomes if for some reason you do have to cancel the project and the team has no idea that it hasn't been going well or for some reason you need to ch- make a change, um, then I think that's the hardest one to deal with. And you end up, you can unfortunately cause issues with trust then as well. Um, because obviously you've been communicating one thing about the status of the project and then actually it was performing in a different way. So I would always recommend that it can be it can be tough, but I would try it as much as possible, really transparent as early as possible about the where the company is, where the project is. Yes, that can make people feel a bit uncomfortable, but we're just saying how important it is to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And the more the team understands about what you're fighting for and what problems you have to solve and how well you're solving those problems, the easier it will be to help them through those difficult circumstances. Um, and then when it comes to, so for example, I've, I've helped teams redistribute after, after projects been canceled quite a few times. And of course, it's a case-by-case basis and it's an individual basis, what, what each individual needs. In those moments, like some individuals will need some time to be upset, will need some time to be angry with you or angry with the company or, or whatnot. And you can just help them through that process. And at some point, making sure that they're as much as possible involved in the conversations about what their options are, help them slowly get excited about the new opportunities they have, the new things that they'll be able to learn. Um, but it's certainly very tough if you're taking someone from, for example, a new game and then moving them to, to a game which is live. It's, a, it's quite a challenge. <laughs> Um, and that's something I've experienced a lot, trying to help them understand why that's going to be really exciting for them is tough. But uh, I think I think it's just about being patient and listening to them, giving them a space. Um, and then hopefully over time, you can coach them to be in a place where they can have a, maybe a little bit more separation between themselves and the product, which I think all of us in the games industry have to learn um, to get comfortable with. We care about their games so much. Of course we do. That's why we're in it. 
but you do need to have a little bit of distance between you and, and your heart and the actual game that you've been pouring all your time into. Um, it's also very different depending on what kind of situation you're in, because you can have risks that ends with a car crash, right? That's super violent. But if you're driving Formula One, it's also, ex it's, we know it's going to happen. At some point, it's going to happen. So if you're doing a cutting edge something, something, it's going to happen. But you could also have the, what I kind of feel is maybe the worst, is this slow motion car crash where a live service or something like that just goes into the grind and everybody knows the trend. <laughs> like that slow failure, I'd, I don't know how to deal with that. Um, maybe you have some experiences on that, like what to, because that motivation is tricky. Mm. Whereas the other one is, that's part of the game. Like you went really, really fast for a long time. Yeah. Back in the garage. I think from what you both sort of said there, it, it seems to me it's a lot around expectations. Yes. Like you expect to get a Formula One car, you then you expect at some point you, you might crash or, you know, if you expect um, that, where you were saying, Arena, around, you know, you can't always be fully transparent, but maybe if you tell people that at the beginning, like, listen, I can't always be transparent about this for different various yeah, reasons. Yeah. So at yeah. one point, whatever, you know, comes from that, at least I, I've given a sort of a heads up, I think it yeah. is a good way of maybe saying that. Uh, yeah, let's go on before we move on to your last question. Do you want to say something as well? No, I just forgot to... <laughs> oh, fair enough. No problem. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's come back to you then for the, the third question. Yeah, we have a huge overlap on what we've already been talking about, right? But uh, it's the same area, uh, how to make team members and also a board more relaxed and capable of taking risks uh, in their daily work. Because uh, we talk about risk right now, our cancel project or companies you close or teams you move or like, but it's also a lot smaller. Like everybody takes some risk all every day, right? And um, so essentially, I'm asking a little bit about distributed decision making, <laughs> um, how you set up your team so that team members have the mandate to do the small risks every day and have a small failure or small success continuously so it becomes a culture. And yeah, I, I have lots of that, but I'm, I'm asking you and like how you how you want to approach that. Nice. No, it's a brilliant question. Um, Gio, Rihanna was gone. I, I was thinking a lot about culture in, um, in companies as to do with that. And again, it's a buzzword culture. <clears throat> we hear it every day, but I would like a mindset shift of when you do a creative you have a creative idea or you present something, but the first thing as human, we are wired to think, what can go wrong? Can we start shifting to what can go right? Because the Green numbers going <laughs> wrong, you know? So, but that's how our brain is wired. We always want to be prepared for the worst so we don't get crushed. But I think there's a lot of conversation that I'm having also these days and previous company is, can we start saying more yes? and less no and think about i don't want to be a toxic positive because i i, I would hate being that but i would like to think about what can go right so that's a little bit of a culture shift but then also i think it has to be i wouldn't say a mandate but also it has to come from the top if i think about top of gaming company they're not very diverse diversity play an important factor here and 
most likely, and look, look at me wrong what I'm saying, bad led by the white privileged man, but at everything sort of easy in their life, but not used to take risk of, because of survival. Um, so I think a more varied sea levels and board will help with risk taking. And when I think about also sea levels, <clears throat> that's my third point, or whoever run the company, there's a lot of data people. We have finance, of course, it's all about not taking risk. Then we have uh, legal, and it's not about taking risk. Then there will be someone from IT, but most likely will be driven by data. We need more creative also representation um, at the top level. So I would say culture, mindset, and more diversity. Diversity, again, is another buzzword, but I think it's uh, extremely important. Oh, Rina, I think you're on mute. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. Um, no, I was just going to say, I, I really agree. I, I can give some sort of practical examples of how I try and build this within my own teams. I think I can't, again, I can't speak for AAA, but in, in mobile game development, the art director's true role is not to really to drive the vision of the project and set the art direction. I mean, it is, of course, but actually what it is, is to try and build a sustainable and highly functioning art team that can that can grow through the project and then also work well in other projects. So I see my first and foremost duty is to serve the needs of my team and their development. So with that in mind, yes, of course, I create a style guide. I create make sure that the boundaries in which we're working are nice and clear, so that ideally the product will be consistent and coherent. But within that boundaries, you should let your team make as many decisions as possible. And then your job is to make that decision as brilliant as possible. So when you're, when my art leader, when a senior in my team takes a creative choice, I mean, of course, the, the likelihood of that breaking the rules of the project is down to how good of an art director you were initially to kind of describe those boundaries. If they're breaking them, you've probably done a fairly poor job of explaining the product and then within that you it may not have been the creative choice you would have made and you have to get comfortable with that and allow that to happen and go yeah this is this is not wrong it's just different maybe different from what I would have done and now it's my job to help them make it look amazing and be incredibly successful and help them work through any issues that they might come up with um, and I would always rather sacrifice especially in mobile games where, you know, we're talking about a live update or a feature update or something like that. There's always a future version. We can change things in the future. We can do another pass. We could, there's a lot of flexibility. I'd rather make sure that their version got to see the light of day than to try and be so protective of the product that I say no to them all the time and then take away the ownership I've implied that I've given them in the first place. So I think that would be always my recommendation to to creators to be really careful with, like you were saying, and how often you say no, and maybe think about it as only having a few per project, if that. And if you do say no, having given ownership, that it's a really it can be a very destructive thing. And I think you should apologize for it and say that you know, as a leader, you've had to make this decision and explain why and then do a much better job to set those boundaries in the future so you don't have to say no and you can allow them that creativity. So I think on a personal level, that is one way I would think about it. And you're supporting them to try things and make it as great as possible and helping them learn. 
And then from a sea level, I, I completely agree. I think there's an, like I, I originally started in animation and the people who started animation companies are predominantly animators or storytellers. And that has consequences for the financial security of many of them, but, but they're really creative, art-driven people. Um, and obviously when I moved to games, I felt that there is, it is more diverse, I think, in the ways the systems are created and the sea levels feels very different. Um, from my albeit limited experience of animation. And I think that a greater representation at that level of creative individuals would, would help. Um, and I also think something that we touched on earlier, that it's about aligning and clarifying how and why we're taking those risks and why they are necessary and why they are required to satisfy the ambitions of the board and the C-level and the investors. So we have set this maybe perhaps a very high target for success. In order to achieve that, we need to take these risks. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is why it's important. And then as long as they can kind of understand that this is all in service of the end goal, it's not a, a wild creative person just being creative for the sake of it. It's, it's with the purpose that hopefully they can get on board um, and understand your intent. Yeah, I'd like to, mim- to mimic that because um, of course there's the, the task of Giving opening the playing field for the people on your team so that they can grow in a direction and deliver a product. But um, a lot of the icebergs I find is in the communication between the C-level investors and then to the teams, because um, it's kind of a, whack, a dog wagging the tail. What you, what's <laughs> the dog wagging the tail in each direction, right? Uh, so being capable of saying, okay, this strategic change. That means that this and this and this is going to change in pipelines and development and culture and all of that. And the other way around, also saying, hey, we have this thing going on in production. This is the team we have. That needs to um, influence the strategy somehow. So being that equalizer, is that the right word? Uh, The buffer zone between that. If you do it very well, I think you can also be trusted to take care of people. Um, If you do it slightly better than very well it's got to be super painful of course <laughs> but uh, i i guess you have to take something on the ears in that area but uh, but that being very good at, at translating between the, those two different languages um could be could be a, an art of risk taking if you know what i mean right i think can add one more thing is about yeah communication i think is vital it's extremely important because the moment I mentioned, oh, I'm, I'm doing, I have this creative idea. It's a bit risky. That's already raising red flags on all over the sea levels. So it's also how we present ideas. Um, and when I go back to my previous lead in, in a cyber, she presented every idea as a test, not even mentioning, oh, it's a risky idea. It set the tone differently. And of course, depend what risk is. Because when we mention risk, for many people is, oh, but burning the whole office down. But sometimes can be small fires, and small fires are okay, in my opinion. No, it's a, a great couple of points, and um, yeah, brilliant last question as well. So thank you, Jens. Uh, does anybody else have anything else to say? Last couple of points before we wrap up. No. Oh, good. Well, I mean, it was a fantastic um, discussion. Really fascinating. Some fantastic points. I know there'll be a lot of value there for a lot of people. It was really fascinating for me just to listen to it as well and just to hear from the perspectives of you guys as well. So really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you very much to Zarina, Gio and uh, and Jens as well for all participating and taking the time to do this. 
if anybody else would like to join another episode of the Evolution Exchange, please get in touch and we'll see you soon.